Chapter 62 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 62. As soon as Consuelo found a favorable opportunity, she left the saloon and hastened to the garden. The sun had set, and the first stars of evening shone bright and clear in the sky, still tinged with its setting rays. The young artist sought calmness and quietude in the refreshing atmosphere of one of the earliest evenings of autumn. Her bosom was oppressed with a languid delight, yet she felt a pang of remorse and called to her aid all the powers of her soul. She might well say to herself, do I not then know whether I love or hate? She trembled as if her courage were about to fail her, and for the first time in her life she did not experience that rectitude of impulse, that sacred confidence in her intentions, which had hitherto sustained her in all her trials. She had left the saloon to avoid Anzaletto's fascinating gaze, and yet she had experienced a vague desire that he should follow her. The leaves had begun to fall, and when the hem of her garment rustled them behind her, she imagined she heard footsteps following hers, and, ready to fly, and yet not daring to return, she remained rooted to the spot, as if by some magic power. Someone indeed had followed her, but without daring and without wishing to show himself. It was Albert a stranger alike to dissimulation and formality. The purity and strength of his love rose above all false shame, and he had left the saloon the instant after her, resolved to protect her, unobserved, and to prevent her would-be lover from rejoining her. Ansoletto saw this movement, but it gave him no concern. He was too well aware of Consuelo's agitation not to look upon his victory as certain and thanks to the conceited assurance which his previous easy conquest had inspired, he resolved not to hasten matters, not to irritate his beloved, nor to outrage the family. It is not at all necessary, said he, that I should hurry myself. Anger might give her strength, while a look of pain and dejection will dissipate the remains of her displeasure against me. Whether from fear or compassion, she has not betrayed my real character, and the old people, in spite of all my folly, seem resolved to support me out of affection for her. I must change my tactics. I have got on better than I expected, and shall now call a halt. Count Christian, the canonist and the chaplain, were therefore much surprised to see him assume all at once an air of good manners and a moderate, mild, and considerate demeanor. He had sufficient address to complain to the chaplain in a low voice of a severe headache, and to mention that, being usually very temperate, the Hungarian wine, which he had not distrusted at dinner, had confused his brain. This declaration was soon repeated to the canoness and the count, who charitably accepted the excuse. 
when Solala was at first less indulgent, but the pains which the actor took to please her, the respectful praise which he adroitly lavished on the nobility, and the admiration he expressed for the order which prevailed in the castle, quickly disarmed the benevolent and forgiving soul. She listened at first carelessly, and ended by chatting to him with pleasure, and agreeing with her brother that he was an excellent and charming young man. An hour elapsed before Consuela returned from her walk, during which Anzaletto had not lost his time. He had so well established himself in the good graces of the family as to be able to remain at least for some days at the castle, until his design should be accomplished. He did not understand what the Count said to Consuelo in German, but he guessed from the looks turned toward him and the surprise and embarrassment depicted on Consuelo's features that Count Christian was praising him very highly, while he scolded Consuelo for the little interest she manifested in so amiable a relative. "'Come, Signora,' said the canoness, who, notwithstanding her anger against Consuelo, still wished her well, and besides thought she was doing a good action. You were displeased with your brother at dinner, and it is true he then deserved it, but he is better than he appeared to be. He has just been speaking of you with the greatest affection and respect. Do not be more severe than we are. I am sure if he remembers how he behaved at dinner, he is sincerely sorry, especially on your account. Speak to him, and do not be so cold to one who is so nearly allied to you. For my part, although my brother, Baron Frederick, annoyed me many a time in his early days, I never could remain an hour without being reconciled to him. Consuelo, neither daring to confirm nor correct the good lady's mistake, was confounded at this new trick of Anzaletto's, the nature of which she understood very well. "'You are not aware of what my sister says,' said Christian to the young man. "'I shall tell you in a couple of words.' She is reproaching your sister with taking too many airs, while Consuelo, I am certain, is dying to make peace. Be friends, my children. Come, said he to Anzaletto, make the first advance, and if you have ever done anything toward her that you repent of, tell her so, that she may pardon you. Anzaletto had not to be told a second time, and seizing the trembling hand of Consuelo, who did not withdraw it. Yes, he exclaimed, I have been very guilty toward her. I repent bitterly, and all my efforts to harden my conscience only crushed my heart more and more. She knows it well, and if she had not a soul of iron, at once proud and merciless, she would feel that I am sufficiently punished. Therefore, sister, grant me your affection and pardon, else I shall carry despair and weariness over the world. Everywhere a stranger, without support, advice, or love, I shall no longer believe in a providence, and my excesses must fall on your head. This homily greatly moved the Count and drew tears from the good canoness. You hear him, Porporina, she exclaimed. What he says is as beautiful as it is true. Mr. Chaplin, you should exhort the signora 
in the name of religion to be reconciled to her brother. The chaplain was about to interfere, but Anzaletto, without heeding him, seized Consuelo in his arms, and in spite of her terror and resistance, embraced her passionately, to the great edification of those around. Consuelo, shocked at such insolent deceit, could bear it no longer. Stop, she exclaimed. Signor Count, listen to me. She was about to reveal everything when Albert appeared. On the instant, on the point of confessing all, the remembrance of Zdenko froze her soul. The implacable protector of Consuelo might resolve to free her, without noise or deliberation, from the enemy against whom she was about to invoke his aid. She turned pale and looked at Anzaletta with an air of painful reproach, while the words died on her lips. At seven o'clock, the supper bell was rung. If the idea of these frequent repasts is calculated to injure the appetite of my delicate lady readers, I must tell them that the fashion of not eating had not yet been introduced into these countries. In fact, half the time was spent at Riesenberg and eating, slowly as well as often and heartily. And I must confess that Consuelo, accustomed from her infancy, and for good reasons, too, to confine herself to a few spoonfuls of rice boiled in water, found these Homeric repasts extremely tedious. For the first time, she knew not whether the present one lasted an hour or a moment. She was scarcely more alive than Albert in his cave. It seemed to her as if she were intoxicated. So much was she agitated by mingled feelings of love, terror, and shame. She ate nothing, saw nothing, heard nothing around her. Like one who slides down the brink of a precipice, and who sees the slight twigs break by which he hoped to stay his fall, she gazed on the abyss, and delirium seized on her brain. Anzaletta was beside her, garment against garment, elbow against elbow, foot against foot, in his eagerness to serve her. His hands met hers, and he held them clasped an instant in his own. All the past came back in that burning pressure, he uttered words which suffocate, darted looks which devour. Quick as lightning, he changed his glass for hers and kissed the crystal which her lips had touched. To her, he was all fire, though seeming ice to others. He was perfectly self-possessed, spoke with propriety, was most attentive to the canoness, treated the chaplain with respect, and offered him the best morsels within his reach. He saw that the good man was a glutton, but that his timidity imposed frequent privations on him, and the chaplain was so much gratified at this attention that he would have been delighted to see the new carver pass the rest of his days at the castle of the giants. Anzaletto drank nothing but water, and when the chaplain, in return for his attentions, offered him wine, he replied loud enough to be heard. Many thanks, but I do not intend to be taken in again. I sought to stupefy myself with your perfidious wine before, but now I am no longer in pain, and I return to water, my usual beverage and right trusty friend. 
they remained longer at table than usual. Anzaletto sang, and this time he sang for Consuelo. He chose the favorite airs of her old author, which she had taught him herself, and repeated them with the care and delivery which she was wont to exact of him. It was to recall the dearest and most delightful recollections of her affections and of her art. When they were on the point of rising, he seized a favorable moment to whisper to her, Dear Consuelo, you must endeavor to meet me early tomorrow morning in the gardens of the castle, as I have much to say to you. I dare scarcely hope to regain your love. Alas, I fear that another is happy in the possession of it and that, if I would not expire at your feet, I must fly far from this. But will you not utter one word of pity and farewell? If you do not consent, I shall set off at break of day, and my death be upon your head. Do not say so, Anzaletto. Here we must part. Here bid each other an eternal farewell. I pardon you, and I wish you. A pleasant journey, he ironically replied. You are pitiless, Consuelo, but you cannot be so cruel. I will be there. No, no, do not come, said Consuelo, terrified. Count Albert's apartment overlooks the garden. Perhaps he has guessed everything. Anzaletto, if you expose yourself, I cannot answer for your life. I speak seriously. My blood freezes in my veins. Consuelo at this moment perceived Albert's usually vague glance become deep and clear as he fixed it on Anzaletto. He could not hear, yet it would seem he understood with his eyes. She withdrew her hand, saying in stifled accents, Ah, if you love me, do not brave that terrible man. Is it for yourself you fear, said Anzaletto quickly? No, but for all who approach and threaten me. And for all who adore you, doubtless? Well, be it so. To die before your eyes, at your feet, I ask but that. Tomorrow, at break of day, I shall be there. Resist, and you will but hasten my doom. You set out tomorrow, and yet take leave of no one, said Consuelo, observing that he saluted the Count and Canoness, without mentioning his departure. No, he replied. They would wish to detain me, and in spite of myself, seeing everything conspire to prolong my agony, I would yield. You shall offer my excuses and adieus. My guide has received orders to have the horses in readiness at four in the morning. This last assertion was more than true. The singular looks of Albert for some hours had not escaped Anzaletto. He was resolved to brave everything but, in case of mischance, held himself prepared for flight. His horses were saddled in the stable, and his guide had orders to watch. When Consuelo had returned to her chamber, she was seized with real terror. She did not wish to meet Anzaletto, and yet she feared that he might take some desperate step if she refused. She had never felt so unhappy, so unprotected, and so lonely upon the earth. Oh, my dear master, where are you? she exclaimed. You alone know the perils which surround me. You alone could save me. You are rough, severe, distrustful, 
as a friend and father should be to drag me from the abyss into which I fear to fall. But have I not friends around me? Have I not a father in Count Christian? Would the canonist not be a mother? If I had but courage to brave her prejudices and open my heart? And is not Albert my protector, my brother, my husband, if I only consent to say a word? Ah, yes, it is he who should be my protector. Yet I fear I repel him. I must go and seek all three, she added, rising and walking hurriedly about the chamber. I must be one with them, cling to their protecting arms, and take shelter under the wings of these guarding angels. Repose, dignity, honor, dwell with them. Misery and despair would await me with Anzaletto. Ah, yes, I must confess what has passed in my mind during this frightful day, that they may protect and defend me from myself. I shall bind myself to them with an oath and say the terrible yes, which shall place an invincible barrier between myself and this scourge. I will go. But instead of going, she fell back exhausted on a chair and bitterly wept her exhausted strength, her lost peace. But what, said she, shall I utter a fresh falsehood? Shall I consent to pledge my faith to a man I do not love? Alas, I feel that Anzaletto is still dearer to me than he. What shall I do? What is to become of me? While absorbed in these reflections, she saw through the window of her closet, which opened upon an inner courtyard, a light from the stables. She examined it attentively, a man who went in and out without waking the other servants, and who appeared to be preparing for his departure. She saw by his dress that it was Anzaletto's guide, and that he was getting ready the horses, conformably to his instructions. She also saw a light with the keeper of the drawbridge, and concluded that he had been informed by the guide of their approaching departure, the hour for which had not been exactly settled. Considering these matters in detail, a bold and somewhat strange project rushed across Consuelo's thoughts. But as it opened out to her between two extremes, a fresh point of departure in the events of her life, it seemed to her little less than inspiration. She had no time to inquire into the means or the consequences. She trusted the one to providence, while she thought she could obviate the others. She began to write as follows, in haste, as may be supposed, for the castle clock had sounded eleven. Albert, I am compelled to depart. I esteem and admire you, as you know, from my very soul. But there are in my nature contradictions, sufferings and oppositions, which I cannot explain either to you or myself. Could I see you at this moment, I should perhaps tell you that I confide in you, that I yield you up the care of my future life, that I consent to become your wife, Perhaps I should even say that I desire it. Nevertheless, I should be deceiving you, or at least make a rash vow, for my heart is not yet sufficiently purified from its old love to belong to you without fear, or to merit yours without remorse. I fly, I hasten to Vienna, to meet or await Porpora, 
who is to be there in a few days, as his letter to your father has recently announced. I swear to you that I shall only endeavor to forget the past beside him and cherish the hope of a future which you are the cornerstone. Do not follow me. I forbid you in the name of this future, which your impatience might compromise and perhaps destroy. Wait for me and keep the oath which you have sworn not to return without me too. You will understand what I mean. Rely upon me. I enjoin it on you, for I go with the blessed hope of one day returning or asking you to come to me. At this moment I seem as if I labored under a frightful dream. I feel that when I am again alone, I shall awaken worthy of you. I am determined that my brother shall not follow me. I mean to keep all my movements secret from him and induce him to take a direction opposite to that which I shall follow myself. By all that you hold dear on earth, I implore you not to oppose my project and to believe that I am sincere. By so doing, I shall see that you love me truly, and I shall then be able to sacrifice, without blushing, my poverty to your riches, my obscurity to your rank, and my ignorance to your lofty knowledge. Adieu, Albert, but only for a time. To prove to you that I do not go irrevocably, I charge you to render your good and excellent aunt favorable to our union, and to preserve for me the esteem of your father, that best and worthiest of men. Tell him the truth in all respects. I shall write to you from Vienna. The hope of convincing and calming by such a letter, a man so much in love as Albert was rash, no doubt, but not altogether unreasonable. Consuelo, even while she wrote, felt her energy and rectitude of principle return. She felt everything she wrote and everything she said she meant to do. She was aware of Albert's wonderful penetration, his almost second sight, and she did not hope to deceive him. She was sure from his character that he would believe in her and obey her punctually. At this moment, her judgment of the circumstances in which she was placed and the conduct of Albert toward her was as pure and lofty as his would have been in a similar position. Having folded her letter without sealing it, she threw her traveling cloak over her shoulders, covered her head with a thick dark veil, put on very strong shoes, gathered together the little money she possessed, made up a small packet of linen, and descending on tiptoe with extreme precaution, she traversed the lowest stories, arrived at Count Christian's apartment, and glided into the oratory, which she knew he regularly entered at six in the morning. She placed the letter on the cushion on which he usually opened his book before kneeling, then, descending, still further to the courtyard without awaking anyone, she proceeded straight to the stables. The guide, who did not feel very comfortable at finding himself alone in the middle of the night in this great castle, where everyone was fast asleep, was at first afraid of this figure in black, which glided toward him like a phantom. He retreated to the furthest corner of the stable, neither daring to cry out nor question her. This was just what Consuela wished. As soon as she saw herself out of sight and hearing, 
for she knew that neither Albert's nor Anzaletto's windows opened on the courtyard. She said to the guide, I am the sister of the young man you brought here this morning. He takes me with him. It has just been settled on. Put a side saddle quickly on his horse. There are several here. Follow me to Tusta without saying a single word and without making a single movement, which could betray me to the people of the castle. You shall have double pay. You appear surprised. Come, make haste. The moment we reach the town, you must return with the same horses to bring my brother. The guide shook his head. You shall be paid threefold. The guide nodded assent. And you will bring him full gallop to Tusta, where I shall await you. The guide again shook his head. You shall have four times as much for the latter stage as for the former. The guide obeyed. In an instant, the horse was ready. This is not all, said Consuelo, mounting even before the bridle was perfectly adjusted. Give me your hat and throw your cloak over mine, only for an instant. I understand, said the man. To deceive the porter, that is easy. Oh, it is not the first time I have carried off a young lady. Your lover will pay well, I suppose, although you are his sister, added he with a grin. You will be well paid by me first, but be silent. Are you ready? I am mounted. Pass on, then, and have the bridge lowered. They crossed it at a foot pace, made a circuit in order not to pass under the walls of the castle, and at the end of a quarter of an hour had gained the sandy road. Consuelo had never been on horseback before. Happily, the animal, though strong, was tractable. His master encouraged him with his voice, and striking into a steady and rapid pace through woods and thickets, the lady arrived at her destination in a couple of hours. Consuelo sprang down at the entrance of the town. I do not wish that they should see me here, said she to the guide, at the same time placing in his hand the money agreed upon for herself and Anzaletto. I shall proceed through the town on foot, and hire from some people here whom I know a carriage to convey me on the road to Prague. I shall travel quickly in order to get to a distance from the places where I would be recognized before the break of day. In the morning, I shall stop and await my brother. But in what place? I cannot say, but tell him that it will be at a post house. Let him not ask any questions until he shall be ten leagues from this. Then let him inquire for Madame Wolf. It is the first name that occurs to me. Do not forget it, however. There is but one road to Prague. Only one as far as. It is well. Stop in the suburbs to refresh your horses. Do not let them see the side saddle. Throw your cloak over it. Do not answer any question and start off. Stay, another word, tell my brother not to hesitate, but to set off at once without being seen. His life is in danger in the castle. God be with you, my pretty maiden, said the guide, who had had time enough to count his money. Even if my poor horses should be knocked up, I should be glad to have served you. I am sorry, however, he said to himself, when she had disappeared in the obscurity, that I could not have a peep at her. I would like to know if she is handsome enough to run away with. 
She frightened me at first with her black veil and resolute step. Besides, they told me so many stories in the kitchen that I did not know what to think. How foolish and superstitious those people are, with their ghosts and their man in black of the oak of the Schreckenstein. Pooh, I passed it a hundred times and never saw anything. I took good care to look aside when I passed the ravine at the foot of the mountain. Thus reflecting, the guide, having fed his horses and having taken a good dram by way of rousing himself, turned again toward Riesenberg, without hurrying himself in the least, as Consuelo had foreseen and hoped, though she had recommended him to use all speed. The honest fellow was lost in conjectures upon the romantic adventure in which he found himself involved. By degrees, the vapors of the night, and perhaps also the strong drink, made things appear still more wonderful to him. It would be curious, thought he, if this dark woman in black were to turn out to be a man, and this man the ghost of the castle, the dark spirit of the Schreckenstein. They say that he plays all sorts of scurvy tricks on the night travelers, and old Hans swore that he saw him often when he was feeding Baron Frederick's horses before daybreak. The devil! It would not be so pleasant to meet the like, as something bad is sure to come of it. If my poor hack has carried Satan this night, he will die for certain. I fancy there is fire coming out of his nostrils already. It is very well if he does not take the bit between his teeth. I wish I were at the castle to see if, in place of the money which this she-devil has given me, I shall not find dried leaves in my pocket. And if they tell me that Signora Porporina is sleeping quietly in her bed, instead of being on the road to Prague, what the devil is to become of me? Truth to say, she galloped like the wind and vanished when she left me as if she had sunk into the ground. End of chapter 62